Okay, Kishmar, so Swipe Right at 50 is very pleased to be interviewing Jacqueline Curtis. She's a divorce lawyer. And, and I think that one thing we realize as, as um, you know, career women and feminists is that we still kind of walked into our relationships with a highly romanticized version of it. N neither of us turned around and went, wait a minute, what should we doing to, to protect our assets? And, and I think this is where a divorce lawyer comes in. So what are your thoughts on that? Do we all have Cinderella syndrome or, or is this just the malaise of being in love? One's not a divorce lawyer. She's a family lawyer. And oh, you know, she oh so you don't call her a divorce lawyer then? No, in Australia, it's just family law. So <laughs> she's a family lawyer dealing with, I guess, um, different nuances and elements of family law and um, including divorces, property settlement, um, domestic violence, and I'm sure she does other things as well. Yeah. Sort of check. So, yeah, and yeah, no, it's interesting, you know, I've been reflecting on it. Is it our education? Is it our romantic rosy colored glasses? Is or it our generation even, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I got into my last relationship much more mature than, you know, you who were in a relationship in from your mid 20s. Yes. And yeah, and that you thought, you know, to last happily ever after. So no, interesting consideration and talking about property, property settlements, prenups at the height of romance is, you know, not very romantic and we're not educated about it. So it'll be interesting to hear Jackie's view, having all been through the process, including her, you know. <laughs> Today, we're excited to have Jacqueline Curtis with us. She's a family lawyer and director at the ACT legal firm, Parker Coles Curtis. Welcome, Jackie. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you, Jackie. I know you've got a busy day. We're recording from Canberra and there's this just general element of kind of, I guess, the elections are going to be called. So everyone, I feel like we're all peddling hard. I'm not sure where we're going, but anyway, <laughs> so thank you. We might just start with an opening question about when you were younger, did you always want to be a family lawyer, Jackie? Um, good question. And the answer quite bluntly is no. Um, it wasn't necessarily the career path that I had mapped out for myself. Mm -hmm. um, I had quite different goals and aspirations back when I was younger. But um, during the course of my university career, I um, tried a little bit of media law, found that I really liked the process of logic and problem solving and application of precedence to new problems. And that sort of led me down a pathway to doing a law degree. And then that eventually led me into working in a um, community-based family law practice. Um, and from there, what really um, interested me was um, the combination of the legal knowledge and skills that I was developing at that point, but applied to human people and human behaviours and real life problems. So that's ultimately what has kept me in family law. 
Oh, wow. And uh, sometimes you find you, you won't always necessarily see the best part of humanity playing out. So how do you find that? Do you have to sort of sometimes step back a bit and not lose your hope in humanity? Yes, um, certainly I'm often asked, gosh, family law, that must be you know, very difficult. How do you do it? And I think at base level, there's an acknowledgement that it's something that affects everyone. You know, nobody is immune from the possibility of a relationship breakdown. And it's also um, helpful, I think, to acknowledge, having been through it myself, that no one is at their best when they're going through a big life transition, like a relationship breakdown. So when I am dealing with people who might be in distress or might be really floundering because, you know, their life has been turned upside down, I really try to bring an empathetic approach and an understanding that the person that I'm encountering or the person that I'm seeking to assist is probably not the person that I might run into two to three years down the road when they're on the other side of the process. And that's ultimately what I'm striving for in helping them is I want to get them to that place where the process is behind them, the life change has happened and they're able to move forward. So that's ultimately how I keep going, doing what I'm doing, because I like that ability to help people move on into the next chapter of their lives. Yep. And I'm a case in point. Yes, uh, Jackie, thank you. This kind of segues well because our podcast is all about targeting women kind of in transition in their 50s. So uh, the question I have is, have you noticed any trends that you're seeing with more mature women um, ending up separating and divorcing? Is it more common now for more mature women compared to younger women? And, and what sort of patterns do you see emerging in your family law practice, especially as they relate to um, mature women? Good question. Um, so I think that probably, firstly, there's a trend in itself in that women in their 50s are divorcing more often. Um, and it seems to be, speaking anecdotally, one of those life stages which tends to be a bit of a pressure point for relationships, um, not dissimilar to when um, perhaps you have a younger family unit who's in the early stages of their child rearing years, that can be a trigger point for relationship stress as well. And you'll often see a reasonably high rate of separation and divorce occurring then. But the next one that we often see is once the children have grown up and left home or nearly left home, often at that point, people are reassessing their lives, thinking about what the next chapter is going to look like. And that, you know, I notice that sometimes that's a, a juncture that people decide, okay, it's time to make a change. Um, so there's a trend in itself, I think, for women in this age demographic to start reevaluating their life and, and possibly looking at um, exiting a relationship. So that's a trend. Um, probably the other thing that we notice is in that life stage, the issues are the same broadly, but the sorts of um, detailed things that we might need to work through are slightly different. So considerations about retirement planning are obviously a lot more important at that stage and, and looking at the particular asset mix if we're encountering a property settlement um, is often right at the forefront of people's minds. There's often more um, pieces of property to deal with and the structures can be a bit more complex like small businesses, family businesses, trusts or companies might often be more present than they are with younger couples who are separating and divorcing. And obviously the big one is the superannuation question where um, for women, where we perhaps are emerging from a work history that's been disrupted through child rearing or supporting the spouse's career with you know, relocations or time out of the workforce, um, that superannuation um, division can be 
quite central to some of the issues that we've got to work out and the particular mix of assets that people need to provide for themselves in the here and now, perhaps for the next 10 to 15 years, but then beyond that stage as well, post-retirement. And sadly, the only other trend that is something that we're always really alert to in this age bracket is the much higher rate of homelessness for single parents, particularly women, but also women in their 50s. If they have been um, adopting a traditional role in the relationship, perhaps they haven't developed an income stream of their own or, or they have largely supported their spouse's career, then they're much more vulnerable in that property settlement equation. So um, ensuring that the client's um, greater need financially into the future is, is considered carefully and provided for. Um, that's something that we're all very alert to. Fair enough. Have you noticed, I mean, I've heard this, but is it true that the pandemic has meant an increase in, in couples separating and divorcing? Certainly. There's been a few studies done over the UK and the US so far. I don't think there's anything currently in Australia that's yet been released, but what we know from overseas is that the COVID pandemic has put more relationships under pressure mm. um, and certainly it's increased the rate of family violence as well and um, you know that is a huge concern for our society um, and, and speaking from you know where I sit as a family lawyer we're certainly experiencing a high level of demand at the moment um, which seems to sort of um, peak a little bit following a lockdown period and, and that makes sense because if your relationship is already you know, partly strained or you're experiencing family violence and then you're stuck um, within the same four walls as that person, one of the things that you may be then looking at is how to escape that situation once you're able to leave your own. Mm, thank you. And, yeah, my friend who's a relationship counsellor, she's saying, yes, the demand for their services is also very high at the moment. Yes. You know, and I understand mental health services generally as well are just hugely strapped. No. Um, going back to property settlement, I'm going to assume that um, we'll focus more on the property, Jackie, rather than you know, sure. arrangements with kids because we are targeting mature, mm. but some of them will also have kids involved. In my own case, I sort of didn't had an envision I'd find myself in a situation then I'd have to do a property settlement, you know, the breakup of the relationship mm. and the DV stuff was bad enough. So things to consider as how long does it typically take? because I think that's what surprises people. So how quickly can it be done or how long can it be dragged out to? A very variable question um, with lots of different answers. But I do think that your comment about, you know, not anticipating that you would find yourself in the situation that you did in the separation is a very, very common experience and one that unites a lot of people that, that, that endure this because no one ultimately goes into a long-term relationship necessarily mapping out its conclusion. So there's always a high, high degree of overwhelm and uncertainty that comes with that transition or the relationship breakdown um, and working through that alongside the practical decisions um, is really important. Um, obviously, uncertainty, the longer that it continues, can be very emotionally um, difficult and we want to try to help people get to their resolution or their conclusion as quickly as possible. Often, um, it moves as quickly as each of the parties wish it to move quickly. So if you've got two highly motivated, reasonably amicable former spouses who are able to have, you know, a constructive conversation between the two of them, perhaps even at some point without lawyer or professional involvement, that's one of the things that you can use to get up and running really quickly and try to progress your matter um, 
as promptly as possible. Things get a little bit more difficult if you've got one or both parties who are um, disinclined or unable to consider the issues. And that can be very frustrating for the other person who's really wanting to you know, get to a point of conclusion. It's important to bear in mind that overall it's a grief process when a relationship ends. And sometimes the two people from that former couple, they're not all at the same stage of that journey. You might have someone who's still experiencing shock and denial and you may have the other person who's kind of closer to that point of acceptance and really wanting to just move forward. With respect to legal processes, we, we sort of have a couple of different options that we use. One is straight up negotiation, and that can be done with or without lawyer assistance. And as I said before, if you're able to progress things yourself, then that can help move things along. If you can't, or if it's not appropriate for you, for example, if there is family violence, then that might be where lawyers can be helpful. Um, but that process is a little bit uncontained in that it doesn't really have fixed deadlines. So it can be experienced as sort of dragging on because you're waiting for things to go back and forth and it can take some time. One of the other processes that um, our system really encourages is the use of dispute resolution. So that's something like a settlement conference or a mediation, and they can be arranged reasonably quickly um, with some preparation work done in, in advance. Um, and it's an efficient way on the day to sort of get everyone together in the same location, doesn't necessarily have to be in the same room, and professional support, work through the decisions that need to be made. Um, and your third one, obviously, is court processes, and they are by far the slowest and the most expensive. Um, and that largely is a byproduct of our underfunded court system, where there are far too many families requiring assistance and not enough judicial officers to get through the workload. So unfortunately, that one is quite slow. And if you're one of the very few matters that needs to go to court, and then if you're one of the very few matters that are in court and requires a judge to decide your matter, you could be looking at 18 months to two years and beyond very complex matters. Um, in those other two spaces, it's quite variable. Probably the quickest I've ever seen anyone do it would be, say, three to six months. Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. But even in those situations, I think they're needs to be a recognition that um, when you're going through an emotional transition like the end of a relationship there can be a danger in making decisions too quickly space and time is a really important thing because your reactions in the immediate post-separation uh, setting they can change over time so I do think it's important although almost everybody wants to have their divorce over and done with as quickly as possible because let's face it it's a painful process but I think there is also a lot to be said for taking pause, getting good advice, considering all options and ensuring that you're not making decisions from a reactive or emotional point of view. Yeah. And Christina, you're in the process at the moment of doing your property settlement. Yeah. Does that resonate with you? I'm interviewing you now, but anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah I mean, uh, um, my ex and I, thankfully, were fairly amicable. So we tried to negotiate mostly without lawyers and, and then go to the lawyers and say, can you help us? You know, is this well for me? I said, is this, you know, fair given the length of our relationship? And even though we're amicable and, and quite happy to move things along, we're coming up to two years now since we separated and we still haven't signed on the dotted line. So yeah, yeah it does it does take time, but I'm actually quite comfortable with that. I wasn't in any hurry and I, I did find myself in a situation where 
I was very blindsided and and felt very ill prepared, particularly when it came to finances to sort things out because I just moved to Australia and didn't even have credit in the country. So it was um, I felt quite vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. No, some- Those are really important things I think that you've acknowledged, Christina, and exactly what I was getting at. That you know it takes a little bit of time to gather the right information. Just looking at it from a practical point of view to, to get across exactly what all your options are, to understand what your entitlements might be, and then also be at a point within yourself that you're ready to make those decisions, which are, are going to impact on your life in the future. Um, so there can be a danger in rushing those things, but I do think it is a common misconception that it can be done quickly. Um, it certainly can, but you need to be really mindful that everyone is in the right headspace to do that because. Going in blind means you may end up with buyer's remorse and you've done a property settlement that perhaps you find out after the fact really wasn't, you know, in your best interests and it's got a bigger problem on your hands. So careful and considered decisions, I think, is important. Um, Sort of two years to sort of slowly negotiate with lawyer assistance and a little bit without, I wouldn't say that that's necessarily uncommon or outside the realm of, of, of the norm. Um, which brings to, you know, my mind, a couple of questions, which is what are time limits in, in the legal system? So marriage versus de facto. Mine was a de facto situation. Mm-hmm. And then a second question I want to ask is what are the risks if, you know, you don't get lawyers involved? And Jack, you and I might be inherently biased having had some <laughs> But, yeah, it's good for people to appreciate what happens, you know, if you do reach an agreement and you write it down, but it's, it hasn't gone through a lawyer or it's not a hasn't been rubber stamped by the court yeah that's a really important issue to highlight in terms of time limits um, if you are married you are eligible to get divorced following 12 months of being separated some of that separation um, period can be taken whilst you may be living under the same roof but the most clean-cut way to demonstrate that you've been separated is where you've been living physically apart Um, in terms of a property settlement you need to have either reached a formal legal conclusion to your property settlement or have put an application before the court to preserve your opportunity to have the court make that determination before the anniversary of your divorce. So 12 months separated and then 12 months to get your property settlement worked out. In reality, for married couples, because we're waiting out that 12-month separation period, that's a good time to start having the conversations around property settlement because you certainly, there's no fixed order. You can sort out your property first and then get divorced. We're probably more cautious about pushing ahead with divorce without having some level of confidence that we're making some progress around property settlement. In relation to de facto spouses, um, you have from two years the date of separation to finalise your property settlement. Um, so similar sort of thing in that two-year period, that, that's your window really to be focusing on unravelling your financial relationship with your previous spouse and working through getting that legally documented. Okay. In both instances for married couples and de facto spouses, there are limited grounds from which, you know, there's always an exception to everything in the law, right, Kishwa? <laughs> um, there's limited grounds from which you can ask the court permission to file an application out of time but obviously that's more complicated you may not be eligible and it's likely going to lead to more cost so generally speaking one of the first things you should start turning your mind to when you're finding yourself post-separation is sorting out your property settlement um, reasonably soon or at least getting some advice around it 
Um, it's not uncommon for people to do a little bit of DIY and, and certainly from my perspective, I encourage people to do that if they have the sort of dynamic with their former spouse that they can. Um, you know, it's a great um, way of resolving the matter because you can then save your money from being spent on legal fees for something else that's more important for you to restart your life with. In some instances, people don't have a choice and they're not able um, for a range of reasons to liaise directly with their spouse. Uh, and that's where you know, we may come in a little bit earlier in the journey. What I would always recommend those to do something like what Christina did, and that's even if you've taken the process, you know, a significant part of the way without lawyer input, that before you are signing anything, committing to anything, that you do get some advice. So you know exactly what you're entering into. Because let's face it, you don't know what you don't know. And there may be something huge that you've overlooked or that you're not aware of or a legal principle that means what you're about to, to sign up for um, may not be in your best interest or in fact could be completely inappropriate. It's always recommended or nearly almost always recommended that you legally formalise any agreement that you reach with your former spouse. And one of the reasons for that is because informal property settlements, and those are things like where two people might decide, look, all we have is our house and our super, so let's just sell the house and split the proceeds and we each go our separate ways. Um, practically speaking, it makes a whole lot of sense and nobody really wants to pay money on lawyers' fees, so why not take that road if you can? Well, the danger is that you haven't formally had that documented in any way that would protect you from a future claim on any other assets you had at that time or that you might get in future. Yeah. So it's really part of that piece of providing you with certainty that you have it documented and recorded so that you can shield yourself from a potential future claim down the track. This is a, a general one, so I'm not sure if you'll be able to answer it, but what are the typical costs for a property settlement? We talked a bit about time, but can, can you say money? I mean, I guess you could say, here's the least I've seen and here's yeah. the most. I'd be interested yeah. in the most. And, and what do you do if you can't reach it? I guess then you are... Uh, going to the courts, which is obviously not a good scenario in terms of time or money from I, exactly. I'm Yeah. Yes, you're absolutely right that, you know, your most expensive um, process is going to be the one that relies upon the court to determine your property settlement. Um, court proceedings are infinitely more expensive. They take longer and they're a whole lot more stressful because you lose a little bit of control over your outcome. You are effectively handing over to someone else to make the decision um, and of course, you're telling them all the reasons why they should make a decision that supports what you want, um, but that's not necessarily going to be guaranteed. So it's certainly something we want to try and avoid um, or, or make our last resort because of those factors. Um, costs generally, like the time question, are hugely variable. Um, and I certainly don't want to say that to sound evasive. That's just the reality of the, the family law journey. There can be um, a totally different pathway for even two cases that look identical on their facts. Um, personalities can come into the mix um, because, as I said before, those people that may be able to work directly with their former spouse, their costs are going to be lower than someone who's relying upon a lawyer to be their communicating medium right from the start. Um, and, you know, sometimes people's emotions and psychology will play into how quickly things can move um, if somebody is unable or unwilling or unmotivated to make decisions, then your costs are going to be higher because the process takes longer. Um, generally speaking, I mean, your, your lowest cost is going to be not having any lawyer involvement at all, submitting some form of application to the court 
for which you'll pay, pay a very modest filing fee. So there won't be a financial cost, but there might be a cost in terms of the outcome or um, the risks that you're unaware of that could then arise down the track. So that's you've got to make that cost-benefit analysis in, in going down the completely DIY route. Um, next one up would be where you have some level of lawyer input behind the scenes perhaps, but you're doing a lot of it under a self-drive model. Um, and, you know, you might spend a few thousand dollars to get some initial advice and have a lawyer look over some documents subject to the complexity of your situation. Um, if you're having a lawyer assist you, you know, in terms of doing some of the negotiating or perhaps attending a mediation, you might spend, you know, ten to $20,000 on that process. Um, court proceedings or a combination of any of those things, um, which you might do, you might be doing different processes at different times or even in parallel, they're going to increase your legal costs as well. For those of us in the community who, you know, may not necessarily have access to um, the ability to pay for private legal fees, then there are community-based services that can assist as well, whether you're eligible for legal assistance or you might be able to um, obtain help from other CLCs, community legal centres. Um, those are ways that you can also minimise your costs. Um, and there's a lot of information available on the internet as well. So if you're cost conscious and you're wanting to try and be as efficient as possible, the tips that I would have would be to do your research, attempt to do draft documents yourself, give your lawyer complete and comprehensive instructions in one go, rather than it being back and forth sort of, you know, collating of information. Um, and, and do your homework before, before you jump into discussions with your former um, partner um, and getting that early advice so you've got some awareness of your, your entitlements. You raised some interesting points in that the socioeconomic and cultural element. Dina and I both speak English very well. I've had the benefit of her, you know, education and I'm a lawyer by training. So being, you know, I was able to navigate myself through the system as stressed out as I was much better than a lot of people. And then a lot of women mature or, or younger would have you know, barriers, fears about the legal system as well because of their cultural background and experience. So it does really concern me. Like a lot of women settling for much less than they probably are entitled to under the law. Definitely. And, and look, I couldn't say to you that that's not an issue in our legal sector yeah. um, because there is a gap between those that may be eligible for some of that community or government-based funding and those that are then in the bracket where they can afford private legal fees um, for those people you know really our, our government needs to do some work but also those people can find help they just probably need to look more carefully um, they're looking at things like lawyers who might provide a fee a free or reduced first consultation um, looking at duty lawyer advice services looking at online um, businesses that might help them to generate a first draft of their property settlement documents and being quite efficient about the points at which they decide to engage legal assistance, if they can. So even though it might be their preference or their inclination to have, you know, everything outsourced, um, if they're able, as in there's no family violence issues that would um, prohibit them from being able to do parts of it themselves, that's a really commercial way for them to get bits of advice along the way, but not necessarily be committing themselves to significant legal fees. Yeah, I think it's also, I mean, um, through my networks in sort of family violence, the issue a lot of women face is, you know, their 
um, restricted from accessing a financial pool. So, you know, yes. they want to engage in a lawyer. And I know there's some funding available, but, you know, they might scrape together some money for that first consultation. But usually the way um, uh, legal services work, then you have to make what I call a deposit. It's mm. just, you know, and it's mm. Is created, and whereas a lot of women say, No, once we've reached the property settlement, then I'll have access to the money. Right now, you know, I've had to, especially women who haven't been working for a while, I've had to go back to cleaning or I'm relying on handouts, they just don't have the cash. Mm -hmm. flow. It just becomes so what you've described there is what we would call a deferred fee arrangement, and certainly that's something that um, many firms offer, not all. So, in terms of being discerning about the, the, the firm or the lawyer that you're wanting to engage, exploring yeah. that option, I think, is really important. Yeah. That's something that we do because we do recognize that there are people in the community who, as you say, may not have the cash flow to be able to immediately access that advice, but they may be really genuinely in need of some guidance or support. Um, and there are also other funding options that you've alluded to as well, Kishwa, um, that can assist people to access legal advice before they're actually at the end point of their journey and have access to some capital money. Yes. So anyway, it's a bit harrowing having gone through it myself, you know, not had the, the amicable ending to the relationship. Mm -hmm. So which then brings me to the next scenario, which is if one feels brave enough to go dating again and contemplating a future relationship, <laughs> and I'm looking at Christina, what are some of the things for especially mature women to consider? So mm. what are some of the trends you're seeing, Jackie? Have you got a whole lot of women coming in and saying, oh, I've fallen in love again. What do I do to protect our property? Or do you worry that you don't? Well, I mean, it's always lovely when, you know, someone's fallen in love again. And it's also lovely when they elect to stay you know happily single whichever their pathway um, I think being informed is is absolutely critical so um, if you are getting back on the relationship roundabout you've got to trust your instincts I think um, in terms of when you might start talking with a partner whom you think has serious prospects about your financial circumstances and, and sharing some of that information yeah. for us on the legal side the kind of key points that we would want to encourage people to get advice is during um, the point that they're talking about moving in together or when their lives are becoming so enmeshed mm -hmm. that even though they might be across two different homes, they're really living in what we would call a genuine domestic relationship. And that might be where you're pretty much spending every night together, even though someone is otherwise maintaining their own separate residence. Because that's kind of the, the transition stage for us where you start to step into what comes under the banner of the Family Law Act and where you may be potentially at risk of another family law or property settlement should that relationship end. Um, and I think, you know, without wanting to deter people from dating generally, um, keeping in the back of your mind that there is a higher rate of um, separation statistically for second relationships. And for those of us who may have children from a first relationship, for whom you want to protect the benefit of your assets, um, getting some advice about what you can do in that space, whether it's your will and estate planning or whether it's considering doing a binding financial agreement, sometimes known as a prenup, um, that can actually determine how your assets would be divided in the event the relationship ended. Um, can be a way to give you yourself a little bit of peace of mind. Um, so the binding financial agreement is almost like contemplating at the beginning of the relationship what you might do should the relationship end. Um, and that, that's not always an easy conversation to have. You know, most of us, when we're going into a relationship, we're wanting to enjoy 
that fun and exciting honeymoon period and it can be a little bit of a dampener to start having these conversations. They're really important conversations to have, especially if you've been burned in a previous property settlement. Um, and I think, you know, generally speaking, if we value openness and transparency in a relationship, then, then these are the sorts of conversations to sort of start having the point you're getting quite serious with someone. Um, whether or not you need a formal legal document like a binding financial agreement, again, is going to be dependent on your situation, your level of assets, and also your partners. Um, so getting some advice, you know, have a one-off appointment with, with a family lawyer and say, look, I'm in this relationship, here's my situation, you know, what do you think I should do if anything? Um, and they may say to you, absolutely nothing at this stage because it's too premature. Or they might say, well, look, here's some practical things that you can do to sort of stop yourself from coming under the realm of the Family Law Act, or even if you're already there, to minimise your exposure to a property settlement that would affect your assets. Um, or they may say, listen, really need to give some thought about having a binding financial agreement, go away and have the conversation with your partner, and then we can talk more about what form that should take. There are a lot of different options that you can you can include within a BFA, um, you know, whether it comes down to if you're going to buy joint property together or whether you're going to make a conscious decision to keep things very, very separate. So that's a way that people can feel a little bit of reassurance that they're not going to have to repeat this process for a second time. Uh, going back to this whole idea of, you know, you're in a new relationship, you're in love, but maybe need to think about uh, protecting yourself and, and, and looking at your assets and protecting those I thought a myth was a prenup. I thought that was only from American legal shows, but you're telling me they do <laughs> exist and that this might be something you can consider. Can you add pets or animals to that? Yeah, you can. You can. Under Australian law, you can add your pets to um, your property consent orders or to your binding financial agreement, which is what the term that we use um, for a prenup here, um, because they're ultimately considered items of property currently under our law. Um, so if that is something that needs some resolution, that's how we would formalise it. Um, and what we see more and more, and I think we'll see even more of it post-COVID, where lots of people have decided to get pets whilst, you know, in lockdown, um, more and more people are choosing to make arrangements as part of their discussions around financial and property matters for their pets and legally recording them as well. Interesting, yeah. So aside from prenups, and I agree with you, Christine, it sounds very Hollywood. You it know? does. Yes, yeah. Um, I wonder if Affleck and J-Lo, because they look like, they, you know, they've got back together again, whether they'll get a prenup. <laughs> anyway, um, are there any other options aside from prenup or it's just risky? And prenups, um, going back to an earlier point, because it's a contract, contract law would apply, which Correct for everyone's benefit. So if one party were to argue that they were, you know, there was the extra pressure applied to them and things like that, that, you know, the prenup agreement may be revisited and open for, yeah, exploration or not given effect as it was signed. So aside from prenups, are there other options? Certainly there's other options. Um, and again, it's gonna come down to what your assets are that you're trying to protect and what yeah. your financial circumstances are. Um, and, and just your, your individual circumstances and those of your partner. But it's also worth having um, some consideration about your will and estate planning arrangements because whilst you might also want to cover off what should happen in the event of your 
separation during your lifetime, you probably also want to think about that, what that looks like once you have become deceased. So that's an element. Um, there's a range of practical things that you can do as well. If you decide, you know, ultimately a binding financial agreement is not for me, there can be other practical things you can do in terms of how you structure any property ownership that you might decide to take on with your partner um, and also how um, you manage your finances on a day-to-day basis. And also, you know, where are you going to live and how are you going to structure who pays what? Um, so, again, I think that's really my recommendation would be for someone who's contemplating moving in with someone or buying a property, having that conversation about what's going to suit my needs best. And bearing in mind, Kishwar, as you said, that a binding financial agreement, um, whilst it's a risk mitigation tool, and it's probably the best one we have available under our current legal system, it's not always bulletproof because there can be situations where it is set aside down the track that you alluded to. Okay, over to you, Christina. I like your line, Jack, that, and I totally agree, no one's ever the best self when they're going through a divorce. And I would imagine you're in uh, situations quite often where you're grabbing the tissue box and, and helping your clients. So how do you communicate to clients that actually you're not a relationship counselor, you're, you're a family lawyer? <laughs> like, you know, what if clients cross the line and and what do you say? What, how do you make that clear with clients? Well, I think that's a great question because firstly, you're absolutely right that in my view, a good family lawyer is someone who sees the client as more than just, you know, a file or a problem to be solved. It is a human behind who you are dealing with and they have a range of reactions and responses to everything that they're going through. For us, it's a day at work. For them, it is a Mount Everest in their life that they have to climb. So I always kind of begin from a point of empathy and understanding um, and having been through it myself, I think I'm really conscious of that because, you know, I wasn't immune to that emotional journey, even though I know exactly what happens and, and how long it's going to take and how much it's going to cost, all of those things that lots of people feel completely overwhelmed by throughout the process. But there can be occasions where I need to recognise that that is not enough to emotionally support a client. And I always start those conversations early um, with anyone that I'm working with. And I also have a really non-judgmental approach to mental health generally. In my view, it's a rare person who can get through a separation, even one that's reasonably amicable, without some kind of professional support from a counsellor or a psychologist. So it's almost always one of the things that I talk about when I first meet a client, you know, are you getting support? Who's in your support network? And do you need a referral to a good counsellor who can help you unpack some of this stuff? so that you've got the ability to make clear and considered decisions. Because that's what I need them to do. I need them to be able to make quality decisions so that I can then, you know, pursue their best interests. If I'm experiencing a client who I can see is having um, a particularly difficult time, then, then to be honest with you, it's quite direct. It's, it's me saying, listen, I'm very happy to hear you out. I'm going to give you as much support as I can. I'm going to continue to represent you to the best of my ability. But I am not a counsellor. And, or I'm not a psychologist and can I give you the name of someone or can I call someone for you and help them understand your situation so that you don't have to go in and tell your whole story to somebody else. I could do it sort of in a um, collegiate way um, to get you that support that you might need. Um, I think also being aware of the um, impact of trauma for people when they're going through this experience is an important one because sometimes people um, are unable to um, 
you know, avoid reacting from a trauma-based place and when a client might be responding from that trauma point of view rather than it simply being, you know, a character flaw on their part or um, a personality issue. It's possibly because their brain is functioning in a way where they're going into a fight or a flight response and I'm not equipped to deal with that other than recognise it and then help that person engage with a, an appropriate professional who can help them with that. And it's a really tricky space because, you know, one does feel really vulnerable and I remember you offering me a box of tissues and, yeah, part of our brain or human nature craves, you know, a, a, a sort of holistic service. Can you counsel me, sort out my legal problems and give me a hug while I leave? <laughs> and look, I will do that if that's what you need, but I'm also recognising that you may need more than that. <laughs> and, you know, during COVID times, yeah, there was no hugging. It was all by... <laughs> True. <laughs> Yeah, even if your services came with a hug at the end. (laughs) All right, no, that's been really informative. And now we've come to the fun part, the uh, speed dating questions. I ask you some quick quick questions and just quick short answers, Jackie. Okay. Yeah, and um, so we can have a laugh. So this is the warm-up question. Are you ready? Yep. Okay. How do you, you know, at the end of the day, disconnect with all the work you've done and unwind? Glass of wine good tv show or a good book excellent okay now have you been online dating ever i have okay now you know as a lawyer what are some of the things that comes to your mind about the legal (laughs) risk associated with online dating and i could only ask that of another family (laughs) (laughs) Um, probably the main one for me is that often um once the prospective date finds out that i'm a family lawyer it very quickly descends into an opportunity for them to get some legal advice from me. So it's been <laughs> it's being conscious that that's not the place or the time. Yeah. No. Oh, no, that's that's hilarious. Yeah. Now, if you had a legal magic wand, okay, what would be the change in the family law system that impacts on women that you would affect? Um, well, the first one would impact on everyone, but certainly women, because perhaps they come out of relationships with you know, less cash flow, ability to engage legal services, and that would just be more funding generally to the whole system. Yeah. Uh, more funding for the court, more funding for mediation services, more funding for those people that we you know, identified as falling in the gap between legal aid, entitlement, and ability to fund private lawyers. That would absolutely be my number one wish list item. Sure. Now, if you had to choose between chocolate and alcohol uh, for your clients in terms of dealing with stress, and I know I flag you're not a counsellor <laughs> or a nutritionist, yeah. what do you think wins? You know, chocolate or alcohol? Look, I'm not really a chocolate person, so oh, I'd yeah. have to say alcohol, but it's probably the, le- the, the lower PC response. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a dark chocolate person, so yeah, I'm totally into chocolate. I quite like that answer, though, Jack. Thumbs up. Good. For Thank you for yeah. backing me up. <laughs> Christina, you had a question as well as, yeah, a speed dating question. I thought this was a great one. I thought of it this morning. If you could have a superpower, what would it be? I look more hours in the day would be my superpower. I want Hermione Granger's time turner so I can do it all. Because isn't that what all women want at the end of the day? You know, more time, more brain space, relief from the mental load. That's it. But we still managed to squeeze a whole lot of stuff in. Now, that was the end of the speed dating question. So thank you for that. Do you have any questions from us? No, I mean, I, I think this is a great podcast and I think it would be a wonderful resource for women in the age bracket of 50 plus 
um, who, you know, are in a very different place perhaps to some of their peers. And I know that when I went through my separation, one of the biggest things to grapple with was just feeling isolated. Like it was only happening for you and no one else you knew and, and, and the kind of grief that surrounds that. So I think it's wonderful that you can connect people through this podcast. Well done. No, I think there's definitely scope for workshops for new couples to, yeah, so we may get in touch and organise. Thank you, Christina. Thank you. Yeah. Swipe Right at 50 would like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people on whose land our podcast was recorded, and we'd like to acknowledge their leaders, past, present and emerging. And I'd like to thank my aunt Akta Jahan for her music. Should